0: they're to accomplish is they're to be reaching out to uh, the lost and dying and bringing the message of salvation to them. But there's something that lies uh, a little deeper than that at the very center, actually, of the missionary enterprise as we uh, see it uh, laid out for us in principle in the Word of God and actually it becomes a model for uh, what we're supposed to be doing, and that is what we call the indigenous and autonomous principle of church planting. And so uh, look there at your introduction. I'll put some, read some more things into uh, what you have there. <coughs> you didn't get everything that I have here this morning because I tried to get everything that you have on one page. Uh, both. But a missionary uh, must set some goals for his ministry. It's been written that a missionary's goal is simply to win souls to the Lord Jesus Christ and a New Testament church will automatically result. Well, with all due respect, that's not true. (laughs) Um, Simply not true that uh, people who are simply one to Christ will of their own volition necessarily come together to form a church after the New Testament pattern. And by the way, the guy that wrote that just a couple of weeks ago went to be with the Lord, so I reckon he knows better than that now. Amen. But uh, nevertheless, uh, the production of a biblical church is something that a missionary must have firmly set in his mind as his long-term goal and uh, the idea here is for the missionary to someday be able to move on having planted a local new testament church that is functioning completely on its own the remainder of this class this morning is uh, going to deal will uh, will be a discussion actually of how to accomplish this task thereby fulfilling the Great Commission in really any area of the world. Now, let me further preface uh, the rest of the Sunday School lesson this morning by saying that um, there are kind of two philosophies about church planning, what a church on the mission field is actually supposed to look like. And uh, the one would be what people call the... um, spokes of a wheel philosophy and that would be like the missionary goes to the field and he gets a church up and running and he he stays there uh, without any real intention of turning it over to a national anytime soon but rather to grow it as big as he can and to uh, send out uh, national people to you know like the spokes of a wheel all around him there starting all these churches and um, that's okay, but he has to understand that there will come a time when he'll have to turn that over to a national pastor. And uh, a good uh, example of uh, that kind of a philosophy would be the great missionary, uh, with the Lord now has been for a couple of decades, I guess, but a fellow by the name of Bob Hughes. Anybody ever heard of Bob Hughes, missionary to the Philippines? And he went to a city in the Philippines called Cebu City and build a huge work there, and of course now he's with the Lord, and he's turned it over to a Filipino man uh, that is um, uh, just as sharp as, uh, sharp as they come, uh, earned doctorate degree, and uh, doing a great work carrying on that church there. Um, the other philosophy would be my philosophy. By the way, I'm not beating up on people that believe that or that they practice that. The important thing is that eventually that church gets turned over to a national. My philosophy would be more what is called the lily pad uh, philosophy, and that is uh, like the missionaries, like a frog. He lands on, he parks himself on a lily pad, uh, establishes uh, an independent Baptist church, and brings it to an indigenous and autonomous uh, state, and then hops to another li- li- lily pad and does it all over again, continually uh, working himself out of a job, so to speak, and uh, so. Let's talk a little bit about this, and um, let's notice, first of all, the mission defined. And uh, these will all start with um, D's here, but uh, this is just a note here that the broad term for a long-range goal of a missionary is said to be the establishment of a national church. And uh, this is true, but a narrow explanation will serve our purposes better. And so, this national church, it, it, uh, in order to be a uh, really New Testament in that sense, it has to be two things: it has to be both indigenous and autonomous. Now, if you don't know what those terms are uh, actually mean, we're going to give you a definition of that as we go along. As a matter of fact, the uh, right here, number one, the term indigenous: the definition of it is native or born in a country. Produced naturally in a country or climate, not exotic. And that definition comes from Noah Webster's uh, Dictionary of 1828, and the idea there is that it, it's, it's something that occurs naturally. Now that being said, there's uh, some some something about that that needs to be addressed, and to understand that better, let's uh, let's put it in the realm of. Uh, animals or plant life Uh, for instance uh, there might be a. uh, we would say that um, well let's see we're here in North Carolina here Um, we would say that the white oak tree is indigenous or is native to North Carolina Uh, if we were to talk about the Australian pine we would say not so much Okay, obviously uh, imported from Australia, and it grows here and it can flourish here, but it's not indigenous. Okay, when um, the first Americans came here, they didn't find presumably didn't find any Australian pine, and so we could uh, you know repeat that over and over again with uh, animal life. We would say that the white-tailed deer is indigenous uh, to North Carolina. Uh, we would say uh, that the ibex is not indigenous to North Carolina, Okay, that somewhere in Asia, I suppose. But anyway, you get the point, you get the, 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 uh, the idea there. And so for church to be indigenous, it means that uh, well, there are several things that go into it. One of the things that we should take a notice of, is that if we're going to be absolutely strict about the term indigenous and the definition of it, we would have to say that if a missionary is present planting this church, then technically it's not indigenous because it didn't occur naturally. Somebody had to do something from outside of that region, you see. But we're not going to be so technical here that we miss the point of what an indigenous church is. The second thing, so for purposes in this class, we will take the term to mean an ethnic people group or nation of people uh, that we are seeking to win. And so the missionary goes to the field and uh, is sort of like um, when, when we went to, w- went to the Arctic, uh, our goal in reaching the people were the indigenous people there, the uh, uh, First Nations people, or that's what in Canada the Indians like to call themselves as First Nations people. Uh, the Eskimo people uh, like to refer to themselves as the Inuit, which means the people or the real people. And those are the indigenous people. Are there white, Caucasian, Canadian people there of European descent? There are, but they're not really indigenous. Do we try to reach them? Hey, we'll preach to anybody to hold still for it, amen, regardless of their color or their ethnic group or whatever. But if I was going to try to reach uh, white Canadian people, I probably wouldn't go to the Arctic to do it because they're a minority there. I would go some place that they are a majority, for instance, the greater toronto uh area and uh so uh, the term indigenous then when we're talking about it we're we we're we're focusing on the people that live there originally and function there that's their home that's where they're born, and so forth. The term autonomous is somewhat related but greatly different um the definition would be undertaken or carried on without no notice this without outside control existing or capable of existing independently and that comes from Merriam Webster a collegiate dictionary and um those that have been through the uh, Bible institute classes here that that uh you uh had me uh that the church here had me teach will remember this that they're are three things that are necessary for a church to become or to be autonomous. Three things have to occur. It has to, first of all, become self-supporting. In other words, looking after themselves financially. Uh, No American money going into it. So no funding uh, solicited or expected from an outside source. Uh, They are meeting their own financial needs through the tithes and offerings of the membership. And so the way that this ought to look and the way that a missionary is going to think about this when he gets to the field is he's going to look and see what kind of average income the people have that he's ministering to. If he's, for instance, in an African village and they do their tithing by chickens and rice and mango and different things like that, we would presume that it would be somewhat the same as in, a, uh, in, a, in, a, in an economy where they use money. In other words, ten families, their tithe ought to produce enough money for a pastor to be fully supported. Okay, do you understand that? We've got that. All right, so it's a relatively uh, simple, uh, simple idea, but... Um, This suggests, of course, that the new believers will need to be taught to tithe and to give according to New Testament principles. Now, this is something that a great many missionaries miss. And the excuse that they use is, our people are poor and they can't give. Nonsense. All believers, all New Testament Christians are expected to give of their tithes. And by the way, don't be so foolish as to say or to think like many uh, many Christians think that tithing is only found in the Old Testament. That isn't true. That's an ignorant statement. Uh, you'll find, first of all, that Christ commended the Levites for tithing mint and ruse. He said, "This is you, you ought to have done this and not left the other things undone is what he's saying there. And of course, there's the illustration in the New Testament of um, uh, Melchizedek uh, uh, receiving a tithe from Abraham, and so that's in the New Testament, even though it's it's referring to an Old Testament passage. Christ uses that to bring us into uh, bring it into focus that tithing is something that was instituted before the law, you know. And it's something that God's people do from you know from the beginning up until, I suppose, until the rapture. And I don't know what'll happen then when we're in heaven. But uh, the point is nobody is exempt from that. It doesn't matter. Listen, if all of a if all of a uh, if all that an African believer has is ten chickens, then he needs to be taught to give one chicken to the Lord. And it's just a principle that crosses all economic uh Uh, pictures doesn't it and so um, uh, the earlier I don't know whether you got this I forget what I put on yours or not this part but the earlier that believers national believers are taught this in their spiritual lives the better it is for them and for everything else somehow either through the preaching or through one on one discipleship they must learn to give Giving is a part of Christianity. Um, it's uh, to not expect this. Now listen carefully what I'm going to say here. To not expect this seems to be to be racist in nature. Now you think about that. Because a man's skin is black or uh, you know somewhere uh, something other than white, does he draw a pass? From tithing and from giving, and to not expect that is to is to uh, deprive them of their own dignity. All right, so we that needs to be thought. and Missionaries must understand that. Think, if it's right for American churches to tithe and to give offerings to support missions, why would it be wrong to expect nationals to do the same? And so the idea of self-supporting, if a missionary is going to Produce a an, an autonomous church. First of all, he has to produce a self-supporting church. And the the sooner that believers are taught that, I think that that needs to be taught. In, you know, in our in discipleship classes or whatever, that there ought to be. You know, we all go through that, but everybody's afraid to talk about money. Well, the Lord wasn't afraid to talk about money. The Apostle Paul wasn't afraid to talk about money. Why are we so squeamish about that? Is it because somebody criticized a preacher in the past because he talked about money? I would suggest to you that that's probably the case. Uh, And yet uh, we continue to talk about Christ even though we've received criticism for doing that. And so it's about the whole counsel of God that we're to be giving to these believers on, on foreign soils. The second thing that has to happen is, if it's going to be an autonomous church, it has to be self-governing. <coughs> so, operating their church, and understand this, that this is not the missionary's church. It's not to be an American church. It's to be their church, um, according to the scriptures, as the Holy Spirit guides. It sounds quaint to say, we are, not going to, we are not going there to make Americans out of them. But in fact, it is very difficult to allow them to have a church that is both entirely biblical and culturally relative. Now that's a term that a lot of missionaries and a lot of pastors are squeamish about using. And it gets into the area of what is called contextualization. And yet, and let me just say this, this may be, you may not even be interested in this, or you may not get it, but the point is this, that when somebody, you know, I get a call actually from a, or a, I guess it was an email from a pastor in Pennsylvania, and he's asking about the ministry of All Points Baptist Mission, and he says, do your missionaries contextualize the scriptures? Well, the first question I have to ask is, what does that mean? What do you mean by that? If you're meaning, do I change the words of scripture to fit the culture? The answer is no. If by that you mean, do I preach the scriptures as they are and then explain what the scriptures mean, then the answer is yes. Pastor Byler, every time you come to this pulpit to preach, you contextualize in the in the sense that you read the text, and then you explain what the text means. And I as I said the other night, that there's only one interpretation of a passage of any passage of Scripture, but we may apply that in many or several different ways, and that's that's okay. That's that's good to do that. But the point is that that the message, if I'm when I'm preaching it on, uh, to to national national people somewhere on the mission field. The message has to make sense to them. And if I just... Uh, let me ask you a question. How many of you know something about sheep and shepherding? Raise your hand. All right. Good many of us. Mrs. Hoyle says... little. That means a little bit. All right. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you that raised your hands, and even those of you that went like this, Brother Hoyle, he's going like this. Uh, how many of you... Um, were raised on a farm and had sheep on your farm and know firsthand something about sheep. Raise your hand. All right, pastor. The rest of us, pastor excluded, know something about sheep. Well, myself excluded as well. But the rest of us in here know something about sheep and shepherding because somebody taught it to us from the scriptures. Um, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, okay? And all that he taught about that, you know that because somebody did enough research about shepherding and about sheep to be able to teach you what the text means to the point point in the place where it makes sense to you. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that make sense to you? All right, so what I'm trying to get across is that the message of Scripture, the plan of salvation, it must be understood by the people in a way that it makes sense to them. And we do that all the time when we talk. Have you ever found yourself saying, um, uh, you explain something, and then you say, to, to make your point clear, you say, in other words, and then you change it and go at it from a different angle so that they get the point of what you're trying to say? That's what I mean by this. And so um, uh, it has to to be biblical. The the message has to be entirely biblical. We don't change the words of Scripture, but we have to explain it in such a way that it is culturally relative. The church doesn't have to to, to resemble an American church in order to be biblical. Okay? For instance, ask yourself this. Are you absolutely certain that the apostolic churches passed an offering plate during their services? Now, you can't prove that from Scripture. And the point is, they may have or they may not have. They may have come and laid their offering at the feet of the apostles. Seems like I read that somewhere. Okay? Um, they may have in some cases, I know churches as a matter of fact, we did it on the mission field for a while. I know a couple of churches right now up in Indiana they don 't pass an offering plate. They have two boxes in the back with a hole drilled in the top. one is for pastor' support, the other is for uh, my tithe the you know, uh, other is my tithe for the for the church it, not unbiblical. They, they have the liberty to do it that way if they want to. What I'm what I'm saying is, is there anything in Scripture that says we have to have pews with a center aisle in our church? Or that we have to come in and turn to page number 563, everybody stand, sing the song, have prayer, sit down, sing another song, have the announcements, pass the offering plate, and then the preaching. There's We don't have an order of service in the Scriptures, what I'm trying to say. My point is, that a national church doesn't have to resemble an American church. All right, so it, ha- so it has to be self-governing. In other words, they govern themselves. There's nobody from the outside. At some point when this church is turned over, there's nobody from the outside telling them how they have to do things. And by the way, of course, we could talk here about the separation of church and state, which is a biblical concept but never never mind uh never mind uh, going on there because i'm going to run out of time here but uh self it has to be self supporting self governing and self propagating and what that means is they have to of their own volition be reaching out to their community but also reaching out to the world now I made a statement one time and actually shocked a pastor to where he his mouth fell open. He, he was sitting in the congregation. When I said it, his mouth fell open. And he and he kind of kind of went like this, like he was, like he just gotten an electrical shock or something. But what I said was that when a when a when a, a church stops being a missions church, they have stopped being a New Testament church. And the point is that. Missions is a part of the New Testament picture, the model that we see in the scriptures. And so uh, it must be self-propagating. How, do, how does a mission church do that? Well, they do that, first of all, by reaching out to their own community, but they do that by being involved in the missionary enterprise of, of giving and even sending their own missionaries. By the way, I don't know whether you know this or not, but pro, but right now, the greatest movement of God on, upon planet Earth is in the Philippines, and they are of their own volition sending uh, sending missionaries out of their churches uh, around the world. And by the way, I'm not big. Just in case you wonder about my philosophy, I'm not big on these uh, Asian missionaries that come over here and get their schooling and raise American money to go back to to go back to the Philippines. Because those people have the wherewithal to do it themselves, right there in the Philippines, and with their economy, and they are doing it. Missionaries to China, missionaries to Cambodia, and so on and so forth. It goes on and on. So, so autonomous. They have to be self-supporting. They have to be self-governing. They have to be self-propagating. All right. So then, uh, so that's the mission defined. Secondly, the mission demonstrated. And uh, here we go to the scriptures because we see Paul's first missionary journey. And uh, we will turn to Acts chapter 13, a wonderful portion of scripture that gives us the model for New Testament missions from the local church. Uh, by the way, you say, uh, Brother Forney, are our, our boards, missions boards, are boards scriptural? And the answer is depending on what you mean by that. Paul floated to shore on a board when he shipwrecked. That's one of the few places the word board is mentioned in the scriptures. By the way, if you go out and find a go out here in the woods and find a board and flip it over, and you'll find bugs and worms under it. Okay, so local church is where the action is at, biblically speaking. All right, so uh, the mission's demonstrated. So we see the de- Paul's departure. Acts chapter thirteen, verses one through four, and I'm not going to read that because you all are. Well, I, I guess we must read it now. The now there were in the church that was at Antioch, and by the way, the church at Antioch sprang up because of the Christians that were dispersed because of the persecution, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And they get, to, they get to Antioch, the city of Antioch, and this is Antioch of Syria. There are two Antiochs in the scriptures. There's Antioch of Syria, Antioch of Pisidia. But I'm told in researching this, I haven't thought of this in a couple of years, but there were actually, I think, about five different Antiochs that were actual cities during Bible times, but only two of them are spoken of in the Scriptures. Anyway, why am I talking about that? I don't know. Uh, in the church at Antioch, certain prophets, teachers as Barnabas and Simeon, that is called Nature, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manny, in which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and uh, fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them away. And they, being sent forth um, by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. Now, you'll notice here that the word sent occurs two different times. It occurs in verse 3 and also again in verse 4. But there's a different, actually, uh, with an accompanying word there. It says he sent them away. And then it says the Holy Spirit sent them forth. And so when they sent them away, that phrase actually has the meaning of releasing them to go do this. Being sent forth means to be thrust or to driven, to be driven into the ministry. So so we see this beginning to be demonstrated. We see now that Paul, on his first missionary journey here, this is where they departed from here, He made actually three different uh, journeys, four if you count the last one he made that he didn't return from. It ended up him being imprisoned in Rome. But uh, the first trip out, uh, we find that uh, if you look at Acts chapter 13, verse 5, it says, uh, "And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God. All right, I'm going to go quickly here, so I'm not going to read everything. Verse 6, we see that he's at Paphos. And when they had gone through the island to Paphos, um, look at uh, chapter 13, verse 14. It says, and when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia. And then they come in chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, they come to a place called Iconium. And uh, look at um, uh, verses 1 through 5, chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. And I'll read quickly here. And when, and when they came to... Uh, uh, and, and it came to pass in Iconium that they both were, uh, went both uh, together into the synagogue of the Jews, and so spake that the great multitude, both of the Jews and the Greeks, believed. And, uh, but uh, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil, infected against the brethren. Long time therefore both they speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace and granted signs and wonders to be done in their hands. But, um, okay, I'm going to stop there. So Iconium. We find also then in verse uh, if you look at verse uh, verse 6 and when they were uh, uh, when they were aware of it and fled unto Lystra and Derby uh, cities of Lyconia and the region was Eliath round about so this is their this is where they stopped on their way out I want to talk to you about what happened on their way back because this is important look at chapter 14 and verse 21. Uh, in verse 21, it says, "And when they had preached the gospel in that city, that's Derby, um, when they preached the gospel in that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, that's Antioch of Pisidia there, and um, confirming the souls uh, of the disciples, and that's the new the new believers, and exhorting them to continue in the faith, uh, and that we must through much tribulation enter in." Okay, so the point, um, and I'm really trying to hurry here, Uh, but um, what happens is in verse 23 is important. Look at what it says, because they ordain elders or pastors here. All right, listen, what happens is in Acts chapter 13, 1 through 4, they they go out, they go to all these different cities, they get to the end of, uh, I don't know whether they ran out of money or what, but they turn around and come back, and on their way back, they confirm the souls but they ordain elders or pastors. Look at what it says verse 23. And when they had ordained elder ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they communed, uh, commended them to the Lord of whom they uh, believed. And so the idea here in <coughs> let me just cut to the chase here. They end up back home again in Acts 14 verses uh, verse 26 and they uh, report Back to their home church on their activities. Look down at the verse uh, uh, twenty-six and twenty-seven. Then sailed, uh, and and uh, and then sailed to Antioch. This is Antioch of Syria, home church now. From whence they had uh, been recommended to the grace of God for the work which uh, they fulfilled. And when they had, and when they were come, that is to the church in Antioch, they gathered the church together, uh, and rehearsed all that God had done with them. And so the point is here that it is biblical for your missionaries when they're home on furlough to come home and report back to their local churches. I think that it's probably, I think it's a sad thing that we put such pressure on our missionaries sometimes when they're home on furlough, and their furloughs are not adequately long enough to be able to get to all of their supporting churches, and that's a sad thing, but I guess it's just Part of the, part of the way things are in, in the world today, uh, with everything being in such a hurry. Now, I'm going to skip some stuff here, but let's go to uh, point number C. the mission developed. And so, uh, so how do we go about starting, a, uh, uh, starting to teach a uh, national converts about their responsibility in this business of becoming in, an indigenous and autonomous church? Well, first of all, we teach the principle from the scriptures. We teach them the principle of this from the scriptures. And there are, uh, we see, for instance, the church in Jerusalem, the church in Antioch, the church at Philippi, and the churches of Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 and other New Testament examples. So what I do when I'm on the mission field and I've got my congregation here, I am going to, at some point, I'm going to start teaching them the New Testament principles that produce an indigenous and autonomous church to where you must learn to look after yourself. You're grown-ups, okay? And just because you're of a different color or of a different culture doesn't mean that you can be excluded from what we see in the, in the Bible. And hold their feet to the fire on this, you know, and don't let them uh, whimper and cry about it and say, oh, we can't do it. The point is they can do it. They must do it if they're going to be uh, if we're going to follow the New Testament principle. And so expect them missing words, expect them to take up the challenge. Use every opportunity to teach the biblical principle in practical ways. and it's sort of like this. I get a letter. I'll tell you where where this study came from. It came from a call that I got or I guess it was an email got from one of our one of our all points missionaries. Somehow he missed this I th- th- this this teaching and he said, we need to buy new chairs for our auditorium. Would there be anything wrong with me asking the church to give towards the purchase of chairs? And I said, what? How, how is it that this guy didn't get this? And so guess what? I'm giving you something this morning that some missionaries don't have. All right? But the point is, The church must become uh, autonomous. So the church developed. And then I'm going to skip here to the church deforced, D-E-F-O-R-C-E-D. And it means, this is what the word deforced means, to keep by force from the rightful owner. And at this point, I want you to look at that diagram that you have on the back of your page there. And uh, is, is this the kind of a church that we expect our missionaries to produce? Do we expect them to produce an American church on foreign soil? And if so, if we prop it up with American money and American leaders and American control, guess what, kind, what, what, what we're going to name this church? We're going to name it Welfare Baptist Church. Because that's what we have developed in their mentality, in their thinking. That we are a welfare church because we can't look after ourselves. Oh, no, no, no. They must be taught, however long it takes, they must be taught to look after themselves. And so, I don't know what else I put on your sheet there, but um, do you have some things underneath that? Some blanks underneath that? Okay. Okay. Anyway, I could talk about church planning versus ministry planning, and what I would say about church planning versus ministry planning is this that some missionaries start churches and they bring Americans to their ministry and they start ministries that there is no way that that local church is ever going to be able to pick up that ministry once the missionaries and the, and the white people are gone for instance, and i 'll close with this we had a a missionary lady single lady missionary from Another mission agency. She came uh, up to uh, up to our ministry. She was teaching in our Christian school, and and we had a a native lady who was the um, it was an ACE school. What do you call that? The I'm I'm wanting to say administrator, but I'm not sure that's the right term. But anyway, she was the head honcho in the school under the pastor. This native gal was actually she was a certified. Uh, a public school teacher that came, got saved and came into our ministry and so we gave her this ministry. The white lady was also a certified teacher, highly trained in Christian education. Was she more prompt than the native gal? Oh yes, most certainly. Was she more qualified? Probably. Was she able to relate to the children better? Not so much. But the point is, whether she could or not, that's not the point. The point is that she could never understand, this white lady could never understand why we wouldn't turn the leadership from from the school over to her. She couldn't get a hold of the idea that one day you're going to be gone, and then what? Even though this gal may not, you know, she may show up habitually two or three minutes after the hour at 8 o'clock in the morning when we're supposed to start, And that's part of the culture and so forth. But the point is that we want to plant a church here whose all ministries can be taken over by native people once they're trained to do so. All right? So you get the point. I'm out of time. Sorry. We're just going to have to bluntly cut it off. Thank you, Pastor.